it's always good talking to you. Likewise, my friend. Likewise. Um, it looks like we have quite a bit of content uh, we want to get to today. Yo, let me tell you what happened at school this week. Uh-oh. Uh, first of all, okay, listen. First of all, I'm grateful that these last two days have been reading days. It's Friday as of this recording, so I haven't had to do nothing but catch up on assignments, catch up on readings, and get ready for next week's assignments and readings. So that's been a blessing. But uh, one of my classes is called Race and Modernity. Basically, the focus of the class is uh, decentering the white gaze in conversations around blackness, using primarily the words of uh, who Dr. West regards as, you know, prophets of blackness. We're reading from uh, Lorraine Hansberry, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, and uh, Toni Morrison. And I can already tell, like, the class is heavy, bro. Let me just put that mm -hmm, out there. Just mm -hmm. There's a lot in these texts. And this is something else I'm learning to do, is, uh, is uh, discern the divine in black art in black literature like uh one of my friends mm -hmm. uh that i've made since i've been at union i feel like that's one of his spiritual gifts he can basically find the divine in any black text and i can't say i can't wait to see what oh. he does uh, when he gets out of school but um anyway the class is heavy i've come close to tears a couple of times and thankfully you know can't nobody see me but that brother i was telling you about and dr west so it's like it's not too difficult for me to be in that room. Wait, tears but there of joy are... or tears of frustration or tears of... They're just heavy tears, bro. Like, sometimes they're frustrated. Most of the time, I guess, they're frustrated tears or just angry tears or just, you know, you know straight-up sad tears. Like, you hear... Like, um, I remember we had a discussion about uh, Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois, and I think it's uh, chapter... 13 or 14, but basically the chapter is all about him losing his son, uh, his firstborn son, mm -hmm. and then having to go to that funeral, but basically never having an opportunity to properly mourn. Like he talks about the day of the burial, walking away from that burial and still being called racial slurs as, as he was walking about, you know, town and stuff, like still having to suffer racial abuse of all kinds even on the day of his son's death. Mm. And uh, furthermore, there's another chapter that talks about, um, I forget the young man's name, but uh, it's a chapter that talks about a young man who goes to school in this town, goes to college, returns to town, and the town doesn't really accept him. Uh, he becomes a teacher under a racist headmaster, you know, primarily to quote-unquote civilize, uh, you know, the dark children at that school and uh, then that headmaster's son tries to sexually assault his sister and he ends up killing that sis killing uh that headmaster's son and the like whole ending of that chapter is him waiting on his doorstep for the lynch mob to come which is of course led by the headmaster so you know it's just two frustrating things i saw there is that black people are never permitted to like really grieve in this country um like we, we are still sub, uh, subjected to racial abuse, even amidst our mourning. Uh, as you mm -hmm. can see online, any time a black person unarmed dies at the hand of police, we still got to justify and explain ourselves to the white gaze. And uh, then um, the other story just reminds black people that we are consistently, no matter how much we accomplish, we are consistently one misunderstanding away from being jailed or being killed. So like, it's those kinds of conversations that just really get to me. 
and just really remind me in just profound and real ways just the injustice that still exists. The fact that Du Bois wrote about this stuff almost 100 years ago, you know, and we're still having these conversations today. It's frustrating. It's sad. It's disappointing. Like, that's the stuff my tears come from. Does that make sense? Right. It does. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, what I wanted to tell you about with regard to this week was uh, we were talking about Lorraine Hansberry. We were reviewing her book, uh, Young, Gifted, and Black, and some people were giving presentations on it. And uh, this white woman gets up, and the presentation is already kind of strange. It's uh, more of a performance than a presentation. And uh, what she did was write letters to herself in the voice of Lorraine Hansberry. And I'm just like... I I was side-eyeing the presentation the entire time because it's just Mm -hmm. profoundly ironic and also ignorant to just, in a class that is about decentering the white gaze on black people, you as a white woman ascribe a voice that you have written for a black woman. You know, Mm -hmm. it, it, it was just profoundly troubling and weird and just... Fortunately, some people in the class called her out. Like, it's already a bit of a hostile environment anyway. Like, there's only about six of us black people in the class out of about 30. Mm. And, um, you know, Cornell West, bless his heart. Like, I, I, I honestly still adore the man. I still have all the respect in the world for him. But, like, he is so good at verbally addressing you with love that you won't feel bad about it. Like, mm-hmm. the... Mm-hmm. Dr. Cornell West is the perfect person for a racial recovery room. Like, he can say the stuff I want to say without making white women cry. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So, like, she got it. Like, she got it. But, like, you know, I wonder how much of it she did get because she didn't cry. You know, does that make sense? I I feel kind of bad wanting, perhaps, a white woman to cry for what she did that day in the classroom. But, you know... It seemed like she got it, and I was just frustrated with the fact that that happened at all in a class on race and modernity with that subject matter at a place like Union. Like, I know it's not a perfect institution, but even still, that's what we're dealing with out here. And I know it's not going to be the last time I deal with something like that. Well, you know, that's the the class that Rachel Dolezal would have taken. (laughs) You know, like, she went to an HBCU. Mm-hmm. And she would have taken those classes, uh, you know. The, mm-hmm. so, so I'm thinking, oh, that's the what we've got going on there. I want to be that type of person when I do the education of um, straight people. Like I want to not make straight people cry. Ah, uh, you better than me, bro. Like I'm about a month and a half without an incident of making a white woman cry. I know. Well, and I was just thinking to myself, I need to up that next time mm-hmm. I. Uh, I'm in the classroom because, like, if if I would have said something that day, it would not have been as measured as what Dr. West ended up saying. Like, I was going to basically ask, what was you thinking, fam? What was you thinking? <laughs> like, that, that is literally what I would have said. What was you thinking? So I have a chance this Tuesday, though, because guess what I'm doing? You're presenting? No, I already presented. Uh, and I talked about separatism, so that was fun. Um but this Tuesday, I'm actually substitute seminary teaching. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So, like, 
And this is the funniest part, bro. I literally just moved my records to the to uh, the Harlem to the Harlem First Ward on Sunday, mm-hmm. and then literally the next day, they were like, "Let's uh, get you in the seminary." And I'm just like, "All right, y'all don't know, Uh-oh. but y'all gonna learn. Y'all are gonna learn." And it, we're gonna be talking about Section 121, which I'm all too excited about because there are gonna be ample opportunities in there to make some people cry or uncomfortable. So. That's uh, mm. that's exciting. As of as of this recording, it'll be on. Yeah, it's gonna be yeah, on Tuesday. And, but if you're listening to this on Monday, and well, I hate to sound like I'm defending the white people in that class because I don't know any of them. But I would have yeah. been one of the white people in that class. Like that's the type of class that I would want to take. I would want to. I mean, so I don't know. I, I probably would have taken it and just never said anything in class. It's totally okay to take the class like I recommend it to anybody like I think white people especially should take that class even though it's not necessarily for them uh, I do think they need to hear the messages from black people about decentering the white Mm gays decentering whiteness period but you know I wonder how good of a job we were doing in that classroom for that woman to do what she did like how do you miss the point that much so, like, that's the only question I had. But most of the other white people there are, you know, fine. And so. I'm surprised she doesn't have a, a let me run it by a black friend, black friend. Oh, that was the other part of the story, Derek. Like, even she, she prefaced her remarks. She prefaced her remarks by saying that, she, that, you know, these are my thoughts and, you know, these might ruffle some feathers, but, like, this is what it is. So, like, that tells me two things. One, she did not run what she was planning on doing by any black people. Like, hardly any if she ran it by any. And two, she's done this kind of thing Ooh. before. Like, she has done this before and has gotten on black people's nerves. So, I don't know, bro. Like, I don't know how to address that without, you know, sounding like an angry black man. And, you know, yeah. to be fair, I was an angry black man in that particular <laughs> moment. I, I was like, what are you doing? Well, what are you doing? Well, here's well, here's the thing is, you know, one day. Yes, sir. I'm going to mess up. Right. And when I do, I promise all of you listeners that I will not use the line. I have a black friend and James, mm-hmm. your name will mm-hmm. not be in my mouth after whatever racist thing yep. I said. I'm just going to keep it out your mouth. I'm going to. I'm just going to have to carry it all myself. That is the that is the thing to do. Right. That I'm is not going to do. Oh, but I have a black friend. Ooh. Oh, I hate that. Yeah. Because, oh, man. People do that with the gay friend. Like, oh, my brother's gay. Oh, absolutely. Like, oh, I have a gay friend. Absolutely. Like, oh, I love my gay. And Yeah, but look at how you treat them. Yes. Oh, well. Yes. We, we l- get- yeah, this literally happened in that Elders Quorum lesson that we were at. And it happened the following Sunday that you came yeah. to. Happened there, too. Sorry, you're yeah. right. We, we should get we've started. Just talking we should for talk the last about DNC. <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead and talk about Doctrine and Covenants real quick. Uh, before we go ahead and launch into that, I want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcastnetwork. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Doctrine and Covenants section 121 today. Uh, Well, I'm going to be primarily talking about 121, but we're going to be in 121 through 123. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, just by way of introduction slash background, uh, the saints at this point are facing what might be the worst of their persecutions at this time. Governor Boggs has issued the extermination order at this point, saying that the saints must be expelled or exterminated to keep the peace. The saints were abused, they were raped, they were pillaged. Folks had to give up their property as they fled Missouri uh, Missouri militia shooting at them. Mm-hmm. Joseph got arrested and jailed after, you know, after what a committee of Missouri legislature would later acknowledge as a sham trial. Uh, also at this point, several apostles and witnesses of the Book of Mormon have turned on Joseph and the rest of the saints while still other saints were wondering where God was and if they had been leading them at all. Why are they suffering? Why were they being driven back? Why were they getting defeated? Like these are the, are the circumstances and some of the questions troubling Joseph when the revelations that we're reading this week were given, 121 through 123. So I just wanted to make sure mm-hmm. that was out there before we... Uh, dove into the uh, dove into the text. So uh, yeah, I've been talking for a minute already, Derek. Where where do you want to begin? Well, like where are yeah, you? Yeah, I'm gonna try to not talk about the Bible too much, but of course it's gonna happen anyway. Of course, of but course. But remind. So these three sections of the DNC are extracts of a letter written by Joseph and his fellow in- incarcerated individuals to the church. And it reminds me a lot of Paul and his finding yeah. joy in the midst of incarceration. And this gets into the larger conversation about, you know, I'm an abolitionist. I'm a prison abolitionist, a, a military abolitionist, a police abolitionist. Just abolish all this mess, right? Uh, uh-huh. But I think you get to see people's character when they're in these significant situations like both Paul and Joseph you can see like when everything was against them when they had limited mobility limited options where did they go what did they do what did they and you can actually see what powerful words I think we get some of our most powerful and freeing words in ironically named Liberty Jail isn't that interesting right I think that this is some of the most genius that f- has f- uh, that has ever f- uh, flowed through Joseph's pen, and we get it right here. And there's some marvelous gems in here. And let's just maybe d- dive into the ver- uh, the verses now, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Where uh, where would you like to begin? Yeah, let's start with the first. The first six verses are really a complaint <laughs> psalm. Perfect. We've got complaint psalms as a genre in the in the book of Psalms. They're a lament. Yes, sir. It's about holding God accountable. Verse one, O God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries. I'm not going to read all these verses, but basically it's crying out to God saying, look, God, where are you? What's going on here? This is a mess. Mm-hmm. Not, not only we've got a double mess of all of this stuff happening 
to the church. And then this, the other mess of many of the principal leaders are now imprisoned and can't be there to fix the other mess. So you've got this double mess that has hit the church and it is valid to cry out to God saying, where are you? Why are you doing this? Why we, We've expected better. And so holding God accountable is a beautiful spiritual practice. God loves to be held accountable. We talked about this, that the rainbow in Genesis 9 is a symbol to God to hold God accountable to God's promises. If we look at Israel yes, in Genesis 32, we get the name Israel, he who struggles with God or wrestles with God because um, Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord and prevails. Uh, maybe some other time we can talk about how President Nelson kind of got this jumbled around based on something he must have heard from a Hebrew Bible scholar. But really what happens is Jacob prevails against God. He says, I'm not going to go let you go until you bless me. And that's exactly what happened. Abraham held God accountable in Genesis 18 with the bargaining over the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah when he said, look, will not the judge of the universe do what is right? And Abraham was able to boldly go before God's throne and hold God accountable. God loves to be held accountable because that means that we know God and that we trust God and we trust God's promises and we trust God's character. And that's where I go. Like, this spirit has run in Joseph Smith ever since 1820 with the initial theophany. I'm going to start calling it the initial theophany so I can sound smart. Mm. When <laughs> <laughs> okay, because you totally had issues with sounding smart before. Derek, yeah, that's the, go like right the, that's go the one time I'm going to actually artificially try to sound smart. But yeah, so if you look at the okay. initial theophany and Christophany in 1820, it happens because... Joseph read James 1 verse 6 and held God accountable to that promise saying, look, I'm lacking wisdom. I have been promised that if I go ask of God, it will be granted to me. And so the whole restoration started with holding God accountable to one of God's promises in the scriptures. I love that. I really do. Just uh, this notion. And I love that you uh, ascribed uh, the title complaint psalm to uh, what's happening here. Uh, I'm still learning about genre, so I don't know all the genre just yet um, as, I, as I learn about that in the Bible. But uh, the fact that there are several of these and that this genre has a name, you know what I'm saying? That's super validating for one thing because I don't want people to get the impression mm -hmm. that it isn't okay to, you know, complain to God, you know? Because, like you said, God loves being held accountable. And at this point in the saints' history, like, it makes sense. You know what I'm saying? Just, it makes sense to have all these questions, to have all these doubts. Like, if there was a time, and I love what Richard, Richard Bushman says about uh, this particular section. He says, if there was a time to defect mm -hmm. or to leave the church, this would have been it. Like, everything that could go wrong is going wrong. And um, mm -hmm. this isn't to say that Joseph, Joseph's faith wa wavered at this point. Everything that he's done to this point and written to this point seems to indicate that his faith is still very strong and he hasn't really um, um, doubted in the Lord's promises or wavered in his testimony. 
but like this is definitely more of a God, you said this and this. Why isn't this happening? Mm -hmm. Like Joseph is asking some reasonable questions here. So I like that you have highlighted this as a complaint psalm, but also acknowledging that Joseph is holding the Lord accountable. He's not so much doubting God. He is just holding God accountable. And under those circumstances, it is okay to engage in uh, you know, what you have called, or what I guess is traditionally called, has been named, these uh, complaint psalms. So uh, thank you for giving me that new vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that this is val very valid for people on the margins. Absolutely. Like Ooh, we Derek. absolutely yes, sir. are the ones most positioned to have a complaint. Yes, sir. And saying, God, what's up? What's up with this? You know what like, I heard when ready? I read this? I heard I heard womanist theologians as I read, particularly verses uh, two and three, because suffering is not redemptive for a lot of uh, womanist liberation mm -hmm. theologians. But you hear this cry, you hear this call, and you see oppression named as, you know, the cause for these cries, um, which I, I do want to address later. But I, I heard so much of the cries of black America in this complaint psalm, mm -hmm. uh, in the naming of the God who controls and has created all and has power to do all, and in acknowledging uh, their identity, Joseph's identity, as, you know, an oppressed people. So I, I definitely heard that in there. Uh, anyway, please continue. Yeah, that was basically my main point is like people from the margins have the right to complain and God can take it. Like Absolutely. If there's anyone in the whole universe who can understand and handle and have the the adulthood and the maturity to deal with this stuff, it's God, right? Yeah, I think there's just beautiful things for people on the margins in these. And this is Joseph's gift to the world. Mm -hmm. It's not just any longer about Joseph's particular situation in Liberty Jail. These words of poetry and beauty and scripture are now inherited by anyone who needs to use those words. Yes. They're ours. Yes. And it's interesting because uh, later... Oh, gosh, where is this? It's either in, yeah, it's in section 123, actually, where uh, the saints are actually told that they should collect and publish their sufferings and their persecutions. And I just thought that was uh, super mm -hmm. interesting because many people on the margins are doing that today, and we are reading their words today as if they were scripture. I'm, I'm literally doing that now in one of my classes and uh, I believe it was you, Derek, that said on the show a while back, you said it a couple of times, the words of the queer saints today are going to be the scripture of tomorrow. And I think exactly. it's, yes. And uh, we have that in the, uh, you know, not, we have that in other texts that the uh, saints have produced. And just in reading these three uh, sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, they are, these are indeed accounts of the saints' persecutions, and they're also accounts uh, more pointedly, of God's response to those persecutions and how God has, um, you know, lived into these persecutions with the saints. So I, I just think there's a lot of power in, uh, you know, folks on the margins engaging in this discourse and this dialogue mm -hmm. and, in, and, you know, writing these things down so that people can have them in the future. Because like you said, these words that we have now of poetry, of beauty, of suffering, these are ours now. Like we get to read these 
and we get to defer to these and learn from them. We who write our stories now and write our dealings with God now, these are going to be the scriptures of tomorrow. So I'm, uh, I, I am greatly mm-hmm. looking forward to mm-hmm. that day. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how we are socialized to see ourselves and put ourselves in the. I've heard this called Disney princess theology. I've never, <laughs> I've never. Uh, I don't know who started that, but basically. We see ourselves as the good people in the narrative. Like we read ourselves into the Disney princess. Like we're the prince. We're ne- we're never the villains. And I think there's a tendency of every person in the church to read themselves in Joseph's position, and not read themselves in the position of the Missourians. Mm. And I think that is significant because that's an interpretive choice that you bring to the text. Like right. why is it that? When we read the, the the New Testament, we no matter who we are, you're going to have the people at the center of the power. These straight white rich men, they're going to now identify with Esther. Like, bro, you don't have anything in common with Esther. Yo, right? Speak on it, bro. Speak on it. Like they're going to characterize themselves as persecuted and marginalized, and Joseph was yes, but the current leaders of the church are not. They have large amounts of standing and influence and power and wealth and glory and celebrity and status and everything. Like, by the time that you get up into that leadership, you've already had decades of everything going right for you in your life. Right, right. Right? So I don't want any, any church leader... To say that they're in in Joseph's position here just because, yeah, Joseph was the prophet at the time, but you're not in a jail right now. You are in a comfortable, red, cushy chair. Yes, yes. It is the exact opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, uh... Being, oh, sorry, being able ahead. to command... Being able to command millions of people and billions of dollars is not at all being not at all even in the same universe as the liberty jail experience to to claim that is to really completely uh, um what is the word uh, to completely delegitimize and erase the actual real suffering of liberty jail for people to 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 do that right yeah so let's not do that and i think that actually let's go back to interpreting everything in context kind of like my crater that i've said before (laughs) yes sir crater returns again let's look at verse 16 it says cursed are all those that shall lift up the heel against mine anointed saith the lord and cry they meaning the anointed have sinned when they have not sinned before me saith the lord but have done that which was meet in mine eyes and which I commanded them. Basically, verse 16 is saying, yeah, cursed are those who are uh, cursing my anointed leaders. Now, you have to take that in context, right? This isn't some abstract. This is a reality for Joseph. There literally were leaders in the church who betrayed him, and that's why he was in Liberty Jail, especially... um, Frederick G. Williams and William W. Phelps were leaders in the church who ended up betraying Joseph. And so this isn't theoretical. And you have to, going back to creator, uh, not creator, uh, going back to crater, you have to 
Remember, this isn't the only verse about this. There are other verses in the DNC that talk about legitimate appeals to uh, holding authorities accountable. Right. right. We've got this in the DNC. There's checks and balances all over the DNC. There's common consent. There's a there's a provision for the trial of and removal of office of people who are in leadership. So this isn't about about that. So you can't just quote verse 16 outside of its literary and historical co context to give a blanket immunity mm -hmm. to church leaders from any type of criticism. Or just that not is, quote the whole verse. Like, how about that? <laughs> Right. It says, it doesn't say that we're, we can't criticize leaders. It's criticizing, claiming that they've sinned when they have not sinned. In right? the same That's verse. That's the problem. That is in the same verse. Yes. It's not just saying pointing out their sins. It's pointing out their sins when they actually haven't sinned. Correct. Is, is the center of the problem with verse that verse 16 is criticizing. And this gets back to the lessons that Joseph learned here in this prison where his liberty was constricted where he had all of these restrictions placed upon him and within that restraint he learned a lot about how we should treat other people mm -hmm. we've got the best testimony against religion by compulsion or force or authoritarianism or dom dominion uh by by the way though uh, i wanted to just uh you know, give proper credit to uh, Disney Princess Theology. That is, uh, uh, what's her name? Erna Kim Hackett, who uh, coined that Disney Princess Theology. I think it's somewhere on our Instagram page, but I'm just going to go ahead and read that real quick in case it's not there, because it is actually brilliant in its entirety. It says, quote, White Christianity suffers from a bad case of Disney Princess Theology. As each individual reads scripture, they see themselves as the princess in every story. They are Esther, never Xerxes or Haman. They are Peter, but never Judas. They are the woman anointing Jesus, never the Pharisees. They are the Jews escaping slavery, never Egypt. For citizens of the most powerful country in the world, the enslaved, both native and black people, to see itself as Israel and not Egypt when studying scripture is a perfect example of Disney princess theology. And it means that as people in power, they have no lens for locating themselves rightly in scripture or society, and it has made them blind and utterly ill-equipped to engage issues of power and injustice. It is some very weak Bible work, close quote. So yeah, anyway, um, Erna Kim Hackett, that is the original, who the original quote is attributed to. Um, I want to kind of riff a little bit more about this because uh, my comments, at least on this beginning of section 121, is going to go right in line with this. One thing I really want to impress on folks that's going to be reading these verses this week is that they are responding to a specific context. Now, that's not to say that we can't learn lessons from these verses that aren't applicable to multiple contexts. But I need people to understand where all these verses are coming, the circumstances under which this revelation was received. And in verses 2 and 3, you've read 2, um, we get some of that context that is super important to this revelation. And we rarely quote it when we quote the most famous parts of this revelation, the, the, the parts that we love to uh, quote about the abuses of the priesthood. And, you know, verse 16 that you just quoted. 
Christians do this mess all the time, actually, and we, we stay, we stay missing some important context to events, to commandments, and to counsel in the sacred texts, often to our detriment because of what you've already acknowledged as Disney princess theology, uh, Derek. Uh, for example, uh, Derek, for example, if I, want, if I wanted to ask the average Christian to name the first commandment, how would they recite it, the average Christian, assuming they knew it? Well, they would probably say, I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of Egypt. No, Derek, they wouldn't say that. They would not say that. That is not the part they would say. You are really raining on my analogy or my example, but it's fine. Um, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, my mind, and thank strength. Thank you. That's the part that they're going to quote. Average Christian. Remember yeah. the average Christian, Derek. But um, yeah. Yeah, thank you for go ahead, going ahead and bringing that up, Derek, because that's actually what I wanted to highlight, because uh, the Lord contextualizes this first commandment with an introduction, um, and in updated translations of the Bible, I really like what they do. The punctuation actually reflects that. Uh, for example, in the uh, New Revised Standard Version, the text between verse 2 and 3 is broken by a semicolon instead of a period, which... I just thought it was a mad interesting move by the translators. Mm. Wait, are you talking about in Exodus 20? Yes, in Exodus 20, my bad. Okay. But uh, anyway, it makes the introduction part of the first it makes the introduction part of the first commandment, which now reads, "I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery." Semicolon, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, I thought that was really interesting. This part of the first commandment, it's usually left out when we list the Ten Commandments. Like, when you ask people to name the Ten Commandments, they don't name that part about the God being the one who led them out of slavery. And the, Well, I did, and I messed... Or I or I didn't mess... I, I did... You did, and you messed it up, Derek. I messed, messed it, up. it up. I done messed it up by knowing the text. By knowing the text. I said, average Christian, Derek. You can't even... You're like Larry Bird, bro. You can't even miss a free throw if you try to miss a free throw. <laughs> that is you, Derek. You are Larry Bird. You are Larry Bird. You are Michael Jordan. Can't miss mm -hmm. if you try. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm getting back to this example here. Um, this omission of the first commandment it turns God into something more abstract. Mm -hmm. It turns it more into an abstract being rather than somebody who is mm. concretely there, who is present, mm -hmm. who is working on their people's liberation. It also changes the meaning of the phrase other gods that appears mm -hmm. in uh, verse 3. One of the things it helps us do, actually, is identify the other gods, the characteristics of these other gods. Mm -hmm. If this god that we worship is a liberator then other gods could be oppressors. If our God led the Israelites out of Egypt, other gods could have and did, actually, as we will see in further studies of the Hebrew Bible next year, lead them back to Egypt, or at the very least, the way of life of Egypt, into oppression, into idolatry. But anyway, I'm getting a little carried away with this point, but this is to say that mm -hmm. the identity of God as a liberator helps us understand who the other gods are, and all that to say that missing the key context of that revelation and others can uh, can sterilize, can abstract, can obstruct our readings of the text mm -hmm. and perhaps make them dangerous, make them dangerous weapons. This is why knowing the history and context of the scriptures and the scriptures themselves, as Derek has so wonderfully demonstrated, is so important to the work that we do as saints. 
Now, uh, coming back to the revelation, I want to I want to make sure is uh, quoted to acknowledge is quoted in verses uh, two and three. You already read two, so I'm going to skip that. Yea, O Lord, how long shall they suffer these wrongs and unlawful oppressions before thine heart should be softened toward them and thy bowels be moved with compassion toward them? The oppression of the saints is the impetus for this revelation. Joseph and his brethren are in jail, and frequently they're getting news of the persecutions of the saints. This prayer of Joseph, this psalm of complaint, is a cry of an oppressed people. And the Lord's response to him mm, is amen. the response of the God of Israel, the God who led Israel out of Egypt, the liberator God to his people. We, can't, we can still read these verses in the context of hard times generally, and I won't act like there's never going to be an appropriate time for that. But as part of our study, we got to remember that this is the God of the oppressed responding to an oppressed people, and that ish matters. That matters, mm. especially considering what follows in these verses that we're going to get to later. The title that Joseph gives God in verse 4 has greater meaning. The cursing that the Lord pronounces on the enemies of the saints mm -hmm. in verses 16 through 24, that has greater meaning. And what the Lord has to say about people who misuse the priesthood or otherwise abuse power in verses 35 through 40, that is going to come more alive, mm -hmm. knowing that the God of the oppressed is saying this. Knowing that the God we worship and the God speaking here is the God of the oppressed, that's going to help us immensely better understand the courses of action that we as saints should be taking with regard to his children, mm -hmm. sorry, their children, and it will probably, as it should, challenge us a bit. So, yeah, I I'm done with that thought for now. I think that's a good time to actually further speak on what we're going to be seeing in uh, these later verses. Now that I've gotten to say what I wanted to say about the God of the oppressed, the liberator. Yeah, that is so powerful because keeping in mind the context and the God who it is, that is the power of naming God. Yes. Because yes. let's go back to Exodus chapter 3. Okay. Well, now you now you got me hooked on Back the in the Bible. <laughs> I knew we were coming back to this. I knew we were coming back to it, but it's okay. Moses, when he was asked to deliver Egypt from bondage in slavery he asked well which god is it like what's you know what's the name that mm -hmm. i should say mm -hmm. sent me right it, knowing the character and the identity of the god that you are serving and the god who's liberating you the god who will later then give you commandments uh after liberating you that is important mm -hmm. oh lord god almighty maker of heaven earth and seas who control us and subject us the devil that is amazing mm -hmm. right that is the god that is going to deliver us and has delivered us in christ yes sir and by the way all these so, names that god I'm, has and also the name he gives moses in exodus 3 very queer like mad queer to have all these identifiers all these mm -hmm. names mm -hmm. and also to mm -hmm. just say when he asks your name just be like i am who i am like, just tell him, I am sent you. It's very right. out of the box. It's very queer. That is that is queer because that's what queer mm -hmm. people have to say all the time. I am mm -hmm. who I am. I'm not going to be someone mm -hmm. I'm not, uh, but I am, I'm going to be who I am, and I will be who I will be. And there's nothing more unnatural than a flaming bush that's not burning, <laughs> right? It is a contradiction. It is literally unnatural. Yeah. 
to have something being fully green and fully flaming and not being burned alive this this is this makes no sense mm-hmm. and so that's how god shows up is showing up as one who makes no sense yep anyway i i want to connect this with the i'll i'll come back to looking at liberty jail as a closet like experience okay but i want to go on to this um this business in 30 starting in verse 36 let's go and these are so important i want to actually read read 36 and 37 all righty that the rights of the priesthood, and this is the lesson that that said. Okay, let me go back to the verse thirty-five. Well, let me go back to verse thirty-four. Behold, there are many called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? Thirty-five, because their hearts are set so much upon the things of this world, and aspire to the honors of men, that they do not learn this one lesson. Verse thirty-six. That the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven. Mm -hmm. And this is both ways. This applies to us and it applies to God, right? right? right. It's So everything we say here actually is binding on God. Mm -hmm. They're inseparably, inseparably connected. And that the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. That they may be conferred upon us, it is true, but when we undertake to cover our sins or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men. Remember right here, this is being written literally under control, dominion, and compulsion Mm -hmm. in a cold, dark, awful, cold jail dungeon cell, Mm -hmm. right? That is the ultimate in control and dominion and force. Okay. In any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves, and the Spirit of the Lord is grieved. And when it is withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man, or I would add, or woman, or person of any gender. Mm-hmm. Verse 39 We have learned by sad experience, and this is literal. Yes, right? sir. This is the betrayal by uh, Frederick G. Williams and William W. Phelps, mm-hmm. leaders and friends of Joseph, mm-hmm. were part of the information behind. I don't know all the details, um, but that is part of what landed Joseph and the others in prison. We have learned by sad experience. That it is the nature and disposition of almost all men, as soon as they get a little authority, as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. This is one of the most important verses for our ecclesiology. Mm -hmm. The more power and authority you get in the church, the more tempting it is and the more... um, the the easier it is to begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. It's in human nature. I wouldn't be any different, probably. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Except for the grace of God, I wouldn't be any. I wouldn't be any different. If you made me the president of the church tomorrow, I would force everyone to do family homo evening because I could. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. So I I don't want a power in the church. Right. That's not what I want. Verse 41, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood. Only 
by, per by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile. Basically, I interpret this to mean is you can't ever assert power or dominance or influence just by saying you have a priesthood office or you have a calling like i'm yeah, yeah. in here so i'm right and you have to follow me no that is the opposite of what we want to do mm -hmm. our developmental path on this earth is not just being robots but becoming celestial adults mm. which means that we have to be persuaded we have to grow we have to be um instead of just obeying without thought or understanding we're supposed to understand the principles and be persuaded into them that's how you gain long-term development and so that's why the only power that god has really is persuasion patience gentleness meekness and true love kindness and knowledge and when you look at the lgbt issue they've failed every one of these check marks Ooh. they haven't persuaded mm-hmm they don't have a case. They have not persuaded. They've just used, do as I say, trust me, I'm in charge, right? It's my say-so. That is exactly what the Lord condemns here. Well, okay? They haven't persuaded me that I'm inferior or that I do not have the right to love. Mm -hmm. They haven't been patient, which is long-suffering. They haven't been gentle or meek. They've been the opposite of those. They've been They've harsh. been muskets. And, 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 un yeah, exactly. Like, it, it, here's the funny thing. People joke about, yeah, we don't have theologians in our leadership because God doesn't need specially trained people. He can call businessmen and whatever to be apostles, which is true. He can, or God can, sorry. God can call businessmen, but, um, businessmen should know how to do some troubleshooting right mm. but instead of talking about troubleshooting they're talking about shooting with muskets Ooh. Ooh. even if it's metaphorical that's where they go and this love unfeigned we've got a lot of feigned love right and i want to name people will, will selectively quote we've gotten some slightly pro lgbt ask comments from the leaders over the past 10 years right there's they'll yeah. come out every once in a while with this little thing that's that's kind of a halfway almost decent statement but i'm here to testify that that's part of the abuse pattern abusers don't always do bad stuff they do a little bit of a good in in there to string people along and to cover the bad that they do this is why we need love unfeigned not the love that is strategically placed to make people feel loved, but not actually be loved. First, 2D, kindness. We haven't had that. Pure knowledge. We've had a lack of knowledge. Mm. On the LGBT issue, our church leaders have run the other direction from knowledge. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah, so if people say, well, how dare you criticize the leaders of the church i'm saying i have a recipe right here from the lord in verse 41 and 42 that tells me how to analyze the authority that is claimed in the church mm. it literally tells me right here no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood only by persuasion i'm supposed to figure out if i've been persuaded or not and i have not been persuaded 
They have not even tried to persuade me. They've just claimed to be right and said no more debate. And that is not at all what a, a leader should be doing. Anyway. Well. What are your thoughts on all this? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm first of all just going to add my witness to yours. Like, I'm so glad we went over these verses uh, because this was really the last thing that I wanted to go over today for myself. Because um, I just see so many things in here worth uh, worth pointing out with regard to the abuse of priesthood power and mm -hmm. just general abuse of power within the church. One more thing I think is worth pointing out here, just bringing this a little bit more to a present conversation, is the quickness with which the oppressed can become the oppressors and forget their identity as the oppressed just so quickly. Uh, we, we see that in a form, once the exodus is, I guess, over to an extent, mm -hmm. like when the mantle passes from uh, Moses to mm -hmm. Joshua, and then we have this very difficult text to read in Joshua where we move from a God of the oppressed to a God of a people who are conquering. Uh, there's war, there's blood, there's, um, yeah. you know, there's all kinds of, like these are the same, these verses in Joshua have been used to justify things like manifest mm -hmm. destiny, conquest, colonialism, you know, and just this whole idea of God is on our side so we can do what we want kind of thing. But that's a conversation yeah. for, you know, I, I guess the day we, actually discuss Joshua in the Hebrew Bible. But anyway, what I wanted to uh, bring out is um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The, La the saints, we are a formerly oppressed people. And we should therefore be able to identify oppression, for one thing. And we should be able to identify with oppression, for another. But, but like, look at this mess that the Lord is condemning in these verses and measure that against the history of this church. Measure that against our present. In responding to the question, many are called, but few are chosen. And why are they not chosen? The Lord states in verse 35, you've read this already, but I'm going to say this again. Their hearts are set so much on the things of this world and aspire to the honors of men. Guess what I thought of when I said the things of the, when I read the things of this world and the honors of men. What did the saints aspire to in, let's say, 1852, 11 years after this revelation to the oppressed was given? What did they aspire to? They aspired to racism. Yep, there it is. They aspired to racism. They aspired to whiteness because that's where the power was. That's where the honor was. That's where the respect was. And like, they went after the things of this world in pursuing whiteness so much that they decided to oppress black folks. Like that is what I immediately thought of, the priesthood and temple restrictions, 11 years. That's all it took for the saints to basically forget this revelation and then to turn around and oppress and oppress a mm -hmm. whole race of people mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. honors of men. Mm -hmm. That yeah. is what they did. That is what they did. So there was that whole thing. And you know, you've already you've already talked about and, you know, you've read these verses and you've discussed them beautifully uh, mm. with regard to our, you know, our queer siblings. You, you look at all this and, you know, I'll, I'll bring this to another thing. Covering our sins, gratifying our pride and our vain ambition. Like, again, I view mm. our lack of apology and our lack of 
thoroughly addressing our issue, our past of racism and our complicity in racism today, I view that as a gross mm. covering of our sins. So right. I, I see the stuff that we're doing or that we have done and haven't repented of. And I look at what we're, how we're treating black folks today, how we're treating women today, how we're treating queer folks today. And I can't help but wonder, yes, we were called. Are we still chosen though? Because you look at how this stuff is going on, you look at what's happening, how, as you said, you have not been persuaded, and how the brethren have exercised their power in ways that still hurt people with no evidence. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. what is our status right now as a church? Mm -hmm. Like, called, yes, we are called. Are we still chosen, though? Like, that's, what I, that's, that's a question that I wrestled with as I read uh, these verses as to whether or not we were still chosen. And further, what we're going to do to become a chosen people, because if we're going to be a chosen people, we got, we got to repent of this mess. We got to fix this. Mm -hmm. Like we have to right our wrongs of racism. We have to address that sin. We have to actually acknowledge mm -hmm. that it was a sin. And we have to further interrogate how we have um, addressed the LGBTQ question. So I think we got some things we got to do if mm -hmm. we are going to refer to ourselves as a chosen people mm. yeah and that's what i love about the apostle paul it's not that i agree with everything he said obviously paul's gonna have some problematic passages and you know what hey everyone Anytime. if anyone is listening to this podcast two thousand years from now you're gonna find all sorts of problematic stuff about me <laughs> right people today <laughs> should find you know problematic stuff well anyway my point is paul was at his best when he was persuading and he persuaded mm -hmm. differently like his message to the first corinthian uh, his uh, uh, both first and second corinthians were very different but they also were very persuasive galatians was a his best persuasive case philemon was a persuasive case like uh first thessalonians was persuasive in nature it, he very rarely says, I'm an apostle. You got to do what I'm saying because I'm an apostle. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. Rarely um, pulls rank. So, and then I, I think that's also what was amazing about Jesus' preaching because he didn't have any standing in the community uh, institutionally. I mean, what made him persuasive was that he taught with authority. People, he just said it and it was immediately persuasive and people were convinced of the truth of what he said and that is unlike how the other teachers taught that is true moral authority and i wish that our leaders would actually lead with with those things and be more like the apostle paul and less like the way the world constructs authority of like well i've got the power so i i get i get my way and and there's a lot of circular argument that's that's so unpersuasive the the most unpersuasive thing you could do is probably a circular argument and we get this with the proclamation on the family people say well Ooh. why why do you believe this and they'll say well because of the proclamation i'm like why do you believe the proclamation because it was done by the brethren and why why do you do believe the brethren because they gave us the proclamation like y you never get a clear solid reasoning behind that uh from anyone it's it's completely circular in the way they approach the uh their approach to the proclamation on the family i want to read the the rest of these verses Ver verse 43 reproving betimes with sharpness 
Now, the word betimes means um, timely, that is, at the right time or as, as soon as it is needed. And with sharpness, uh-huh. now, I want to know what that means. Does it mean sharpness in the sense of like, oh, a sharp intellect or a very witty word or a very well-crafted appeal? Or does it mean sharpness in terms of pain? I would like to. And this is where my eisegesis tendencies come in. It's, I want it to be <laughs> a sharpness of skill, not a sharpness of pain. But that's Aye. what I want it to be. Yeah, I don't Aye. know if that's what it is or not, but that's what I want it to be. When, I think it's making people cry, but it's fine. Uh, <laughs> well, you're going to make me cry. There you go. Uh, when, <laughs> and here's the important clause. When moved to pause. When moved upon by the Holy Ghost. Not just reproving whenever you want but only when you are genuinely moved by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love towards him whom thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee to be his enemy. This is what in the BDSM world they call aftercare. Uh-huh. And so you have to, if you're going to, uh, you definitely want to preserve the dignity and the humanity of the person. You never want to just, trash them you want to build them up better than before you uh, tore them down verse 44 that he may know that thy faithfulness is stronger than the cords of death let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion, and thy scepter an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth, and thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means it shall flow unto thee forever and ever. And um, what does this say about God, about what we can expect from God? Right, God being a priesthood holder, God mm-hmm. being someone who has uh, power and influence and authority, like we can expect this of God, and I think that is empowering to know that God loves being held accountable to this, and that if God wants something from us, God has got to persuade us. God has got to make a case, and. and and God loves this kind of pushback, I think. Mm-hmm. And speaking of this, um, this section ends with this wonderful sense of peace and encouragement and empowerment, right? Like a scepter yeah. of righteousness and yeah. truth, like constant companion. And I love that uh, in verse, let's go into section 122. I'm not going to go into it very detailed, but section 122 I think is very much encouragement towards oppressed people. Think about Liberty Jail on the analogy of a closet experience, the, the constraint, the external compulsion, the restriction that's involved, the, the fact that you can't be yourself fully in the closet or in prison is at the heart of what's going on here. And DNC section 122 speaks into the heart of that, a bold, beautiful resurrection of encouragement out of nowhere, in a sense. And I think that's really what we learn from the cross. 
and I, I think it, it's a good tie-in to the beginning because it began with a complaint, this, uh, this, this lament that Joseph had about, God, why aren't you taking care of us? Like, where are you? And it ends by saying, well, God's priesthood is also subject to these same rules and that we can hold God accountable to them. Uh, and this go, gets back to the fight that was uh, that took place in uh, the premortal council, right? The dispute between the plan of salvation that Jesus had and the one that Satan had, and Jesus is one, and Satan's was the one that was based on compulsion. I, I think that's why we um, that's why God is worthy of worship. Let me just say it that way, because of this this approach and we see this uh as well i've said this before many times philippians chapter 2 this great christ hymn that celebrates christ emptying himself of power and status for the sake of those who are weak and that's a model of how we should live in community that's explicitly what paul's doing for the philippians and why he's even mentioning the cross. Speaking of cross, I want to move on to DNC 123. I'm not going to go into the specifics, but DNC 123 is all about holding Missouri and the people of Missouri collectively accountable for this. People are talking about, well, well there's no collective guilt or collective accountability or collective whatever, but yeah, there is, right? And so holding uh, institutions and bodies, not just individuals, right? Because some problems aren't just the problems of individuals. Holding um, an entire state or an entire institution accountable is what DNC 123 is doing. Um, and that shows you the radical difference, kind of coming full circle again, the radical difference between human-style institutions which don't like to be accountable and God who loves to be accountable and anyone truly imitating and being a servant of God will doubly want to be accountable. And, you know, speaking of this persecution, Mormons love, whenever they get criticized, they love to claim persecution, right? And I just want to name, in the name of... Don't call us Mormon anymore. Yeah, in the name <laughs> of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to say that you know you have privilege when you mistake accountability for persecution. Ooh, that's a word. Yeah, you know you have that privilege when you mistake accountability for persecution, and that's exactly what they want to do. They want, they want to say, oh, no, but this is our faith. This is our beliefs. You can't criticize us for our beliefs. This is, this is anti-Mormon persecution, whatever. Like, no. You can be as Mormon as you want or as Latter-day Saint as you want, but you can't <laughs> hurt other people and get away with doing it in the name of the Lord who's on the side of the oppressed. Right. And so there's just no way that... Um, that they can successfully continue to persecute my people. Mm. In the long run, it will uh, it will not work. And so we who are queer are are somewhat in in the in the spot that Joseph is. Not um, it's not exactly the same. But when Joseph was in Liberty Jail, the rest of the story hadn't been written yet. 
and here we are queer. Our, the rest of our story hasn't been written. We haven't fully seen a deliverance by the hand of the Lord. And we will. And I want to warn us that when we queer people get um, institutional standing in the church, you know what the first thing we're going to be tempted to do is? Tell us, tell us, tell us. Persecute other people. It says it right mm -hmm. here. It says it right here. This is a warning. Like we queer people, and we see this as queer people have, at, at, or as, uh, let me say it this way, as white cisgender uh, gay men have become more liberated in society, we've become more complicit in the problem. We've seen this, right? It's, it's pretty sad. Right. We have learned by sad experience that, that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men as soon as they get a little authority as they suppose, they will immediately begin to exercise unrighteous dominion. Now, you quoted Exodus 20, but what people might not realize is, yes, it starts out saying, I am the Lord, the God who brought thee out of Egypt, out of slavery. But the Ten Commandments actually permit slavery explicitly in two of the commandments. If you look at the commandment on Sabbath, it says, yes, you need to rest on, on the Sabbath, but also your... Uh, male and female slaves and then in the mm. commandment on coveting it says not to covet your neighbors male and female slaves so even these ten commandments presuppose uh, the existence of slavery right and so there's the Bible is a it's not a ch children's book it's it can be messy <laughs> to handle responsibility it's complicated the it Bible is, is a two-edged sword, and if you don't handle it right, you can hurt people, right? Just because mm -hmm. someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean that they're right. Um, and just because someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean that they're good. And just because someone quotes the Bible doesn't mean that it is healthy, right? And I say this as someone who quotes all the Bible all the time, right? All the time. All the time. You know, that... <laughs> Jesus loved to criticize the Bible experts. Usually it's translated as scribes, but it wasn't just people who mm -hmm. copied. It was people who were experts in the text. And Jesus, I think, was mad at them because he, they should have been, of all of the people, he was holding them accountable to what they should have known. So I feel like I have a very... Um, what is the word? I don't even know what the right word is. But as someone who's who's engages the Bible on this level, I feel like I should have the highest standards for my own behavior and treatment of other people. I have no excuse. Like, there's no way that I can ever go on Judgment Day and tell God, well, I didn't know that's what you said. <laughs> They're like, I, uh, there's going to be receipts of me quoting these verses mm -hmm. that on Judgment mm -hmm. Day I'm going to pretend that I don't know if I mm -hmm. don't treat people right. I'm What, what excuse am I going to have? Anyway, mm -hmm. um, I think that's a good place to end it. I, I've been talking way too much. All good, all good. We got a healthy dose of Bible in today's conversation, but I think we expected that anyway. Oops. So uh, anyway, all good. I love it when you talk Bible, bro. It's great. Yeah. Before we before we would go ahead and wrap up, I want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the past 
50 plus years to fit you situated in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Facebook, and on Twitter and Instagram at btblds. Yes, sir. Also want to uh, remind everybody to uh, bug Derek with your requests for his online course. I am personally making it one of my missions to make sure this thing mm. gets produced because the people need it, the people want it, and you know you got to give the people what they want. And yeah, Derek, Derek be sitting on all this knowledge. Like y'all be listening to us. Y'all be hearing that Derek can speak at length about any of this stuff and he could keep going. Like the only reason Derek stopped talking, yeah. the only reason he said that's a good place to end is because he could have said more and he would have gone on at least another hour had he been permitted the time. But because we're trying to get better about how much time we spend talking on this podcast, Derek <laughs> stops talking. Y'all want to listen to him talk more. Yes. Want to listen to him in a medium and a format mm. that actually suits mm. his unique mm. talents and his proclivity toward long speech. Let's get this class done. Mm. Let's make yeah. Derek be more Derek, I guess. So, yeah. Oh, well, I'll, I'll, let me just tell you, like ninety percent of the time, I quote the Bible. I don't even plan. I don't prepare that. I just like figure out what I'm doing in the moment, and I. Uh, so it's not like oh, I have to research all this mm -hmm. time to like put all this stuff together. It's like. I just think of, of how it connects and how it unfolds. And I just want to make another connection. I know I already said I was done, but now I'm not done. <laughs> it has to do with following Christ's example of treating others and, and authority and the, and the power of persuasion. We talked about how Jesus was persuasive in his teaching. Let's look at the Mark 5 uh account of the healing of the man who was demon possessed and this is where he throws the demons into the uh herd of the pigs and they tumble off the cliff into the sea of galilee which um anyway notice the reason he did that is because he he first had a conversation with the demons he talked to the demons and the demons asked him not uh they the demons asked Jesus to be sent into the into the to the swine and Jesus granted their request so this tells me that Jesus was willing to have a back and forth conversation with the demons that he didn't just force them he actually like worked with them and persuaded them and and found something like think about how radical that is that God, that Jesus, the Son of God, would be willing to negotiate and listen to even demons. Now, the radical thing that people might not connect is, look at how church leaders treat queer people. They don't listen to us. They don't talk to us. They don't negotiate with us. What I'm here to tell you is that the leaders of this church treat my people worse than the way Jesus treated demons. Let me say that again. The leaders of this church treat my people worse, 
with less respect than the way Jesus treated demons, which means there's no excuse for it. Well, well, well. Right? They talk around us and about us, and they they talk about us in the third person uh, often. And when they do talk to us in the second person, it's it's not helpful. It's not even a, a two-way conversation. Uh, so hopefully they will follow the example of the Lord whose name this church is named after and, um, and be like Christ and, and have a conversation with us. Y'all see why Derek needs a course. Special thanks to Tamara Kemsley for editing the show. Also, David Doyle for editing the transcripts. Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for being a big help with the social media. And uh, definitely the team doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines, which includes Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and uh, Beth Johnson. These outlines, by the way, also include content from the Faithful Feminist episodes and the Holy Human episodes from the same week. So you can basically have a one-stop shop for all three of our takes on the week's Come Follow Me lesson. There's a, a link to the outlines. They'll be in the show notes as well as the uh, drop-down menu on our website that reads episode outlines. And the uh, same goes for the transcripts. Oh, and there's also a URL for the outlines, right? Easy to remember outline URL. Right. It is tinyurl.com slash btboutlines. Excellent. Then thank you all for joining us till we meet again next week. Till we meet again next week. More jokes later. Bye. (laughs) Hate you, bro.